Hello and welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. I'm Zoe Swithenbank and I'm here today with Professor Emeritus of Health Psychology in the Department of Behavioural Science and Health at University College London, Robert West. Um, thanks for joining us today. Um, so we're going to talk about your article, which is called Achieving Consensus, Coherence, Clarity and Consistency when talking about addiction. So firstly, could you just tell me why you think, why is it important that we do this? Why, why do we need to achieve consensus and consistency? Probably most of your listeners, particularly if they work in the field of addiction, will have experienced the uh, precisely why we need it and the frustrations that we all experience in the field when it comes to really basic things. So if we if we look at the construct addiction, quite obviously different people mean different things by the word. And what happens is that people get hung up on the fact that the word can mean different things. And it's not that each one of those different things isn't useful and important. It's that it's different. So on the one hand, we have people saying, well, no, addiction is a brain disease. And that has certain implications. Other people will say, well, addiction is a social construct that we use in order to understand and assign moral values to the behaviours that uh, sort of make it up. Other people talk about addictions as behaviours rather than as, let's say, brain processes or mental processes and so on. Now, the thing is that all of these things are meaningful. You know, there is a disease element to addiction. If there weren't, we wouldn't use words like treat, for example. We we treat addictions. And there's a very good reason why we treat addictions is because, you know, they cause people a lot of pain and suffering and and death. So, and we have treatments. You know, if, if we didn't have treatments, a lot more people would be suffering. So, so that's important. But that's not to deny that it is a social condition, you know, a socially constructed idea. For example, you know, where does the boundary lie between something that we would consider to be addictive and something that we think, well, it's it's yeah, it's hard to stop doing it, but we're not really going to call it an addiction. So, so there's lots of social construction in there as well, and so. What's happened in in the recent years is that other sciences, most notably biology, but extending into other sciences, have said, "Well, look, because we're not alone, by the way, in this. You know, other other areas of study have exactly the same issues when you're dealing with constructions like this. What they've done is to say, well, let's turn this on its head, and rather than saying what is and is not addiction." Rather, let's say, what are the things that we're interested in? And let's apply, let's define those very precisely. And then let's apply whatever labels we think are appropriate to those and not get hung up on the label. So, and these these new constructions are called ontologies. Ontologies are not to be confused with the philosophical concept of ontology, which is the the study of the world and uh, and knowledge and our understanding of it, although it's related. Ontologies are very specific um, ways of representing the world that have been developed for primarily for use in computer science and data science. And what they are are very formal systems for representing things called entities. Entities are literally 
anything you can imagine, whether it's real or not real. So unicorn, for example, can be an entity, as can addiction, as can horse, but not just objects. Entities can be things like color, red, blue, green. They can be processes. They can be things that we do like behaviors, physiological processes, genes, literally anything that you can imagine can be what's known as an entity. And what you do uh, in ontologies is you define those entities using a particular formal system of definition, which makes it clear what they are. And then you specify the properties of those entities in a very specific way. One of the most important properties is what we call subclass or, or its opposite, which is parent class, which is what kind of thing is it? So a horse, for example, is a subclass of mammal. A mammal is a subclass of you know all the various things going up to animal, which goes all the way up to organism. So that's that's an example of a kind of relational property that a thing might have, which is really important. So when you're looking at something like addiction, you can say, well, what kind of a thing do we want our usage of that term to represent? Do we want it to be a disease? Is it a subclass of disease? Well, some people might say it is, and then you go off on that route. Other people might say, well, it's a subclass of a, a behavior pattern, so an addictive behavior pattern. And others would say, well, let's let's be a bit more agnostic about it and say, well, it's a subclass of some kind of mental disposition disposition being something that is an attribute of of something in which isn't always there you know people don't always go around addicting they live their lives and when certain circumstances arise they engage in behaviors that are driven by or or, or influenced by their addiction so it's a disposition so what you do then in ontologies is you say well look we're going to create these definitions and then we can assign labels to them And that will help us to be clear about what it is that we're talking about. And we don't need to get into pointless disputes about the nature of it. But what we can do, equally importantly, is to see how they relate to each other. So we can then, instead of arguing with people about the brain disease model, for example, we can say, well, how does what we're interested in relate to the issue of brain disease? And and then what that means then is that you can go on to be much more scientific, which is the whole purpose of the thing, about the way you talk about it and the measures that you use to describe it. So it's it's not just you know arguing about angels, you know, number of angels on the head of a pin. This stuff really matters. Um, if you're going to talk about what is the prevalence of tobacco addiction. That's that only has any meaning for a particular way in which you define and operationalize addiction. Otherwise, it could be you know any number really of you know as long as people are using tobacco. So that that's 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 a sort of very long-winded answer to, to what was intended probably to be quite a straightforward question. So looking at the paper, so you you've explained about the ontology, which is great. Um, so you've got this website, mm-hmm. Addicto. Is that what it's called? It's called Addicto Vocab is the website that people can use. It's just addictovocab.org. And you just go onto that and you can search for the terms that we've 
developed so far. And we're only a, you know, a small way into this process because ultimately what we want to do is to be able to have a well-defined construct for anything that anyone might want to mention in a paper or a research report or a, or a study protocol so that when people are writing their work, they can always point to a fully defined class, as it's called, class of entity, so that now this this has huge benefits, not just obviously for us humans who are reading the paper, who can then sort of, in theory, or in the future, it'll happen that you just click, you know, People use whatever words they want, like addiction or craving or alcohol consumption, you know, cocaine use and so on. They will use those words. And then in the sort of electronic version of the paper, you would just click on that to make to 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 link you to whatever the ontology definition is, so that people can be absolutely clear. So that's that's for us humans. But way more important even than that is the fact that. That and this is where ontologies come into their own as as computer science artifacts and and in the actually in, in commerce and and basically everywhere you look on the internet it is that if you imagine that each of these entities now has has a unique ID it has you it has its own unique reference point and in fact it has its own web address okay what that means is that if you if you have alongside your paper your links to all these unique IDs and they're all available on the web, then anyone searching for something, literally any construct that you mention in your paper can just build a simple computer API, as it's called, application program interface, or a, some script to find it anywhere in the paper. No one after that ever needs to annotate. <laughs> Can you imagine? Wow. Net, you know, see systematic reviews. No one ever needs to annotate them again because it's it's all automatically done and available from the moment that paper is published. And so all you, all us researchers, then when we're trying to synthesize evidence and come to conclusions about things, ever need to do is to use our human brain to make interpretations and to construct our searches to to find the things that we're looking for. So this, this important feature of, of ontologies, which is these unique IDs, is, is going to absolutely revolutionize. It's already, to some extent, done so in biology with the gene ontology, but uh, we, can, we can do a lot more. Well, that's, that, I mean, that nicely answers my next question is how is this going to benefit researchers? Sounds mm. like it's going to revolutionize systematic reviews. So, yeah, yeah I think so. That. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you know, we all know how long it takes to do a good systematic review. And I'm always reminded of uh, discussions in, in, in our senior editorial group at Addiction where, where Shane Dark, a good friend and wonderful, wonderful scientist, would rail against systematic reviews that searched the literature for you know and found you know like 30,000 entities and then once by the time you'd 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 got it down to the eligible ones it was like zero papers and then someone would try and publish <laughs> review with zero articles reviewed in it uh, and you know that's the frustration you know they could take an awful long time and they're very dependent on 
how you do the search. You know, the, the same search can result in somewhat different answers depending on you know precisely what terms are used and how they're interpreted. So so this will absolutely revolutionize it because no, you know it's just available whatever you want to search for it's available at the, at the press of a button i mean it's like really it's not just like it actually is the same technology that underpins your ability to find holidays on the internet or or when you when you shop on the internet they use ontologies underlying these things so that so that and they organize their database using these ontologies so that you if you search for something uh, you know golf clubs or you know uh, irons or whatever it might be the computer knows what you're looking for even if you've actually used a that might not be the most commonly used term for it you mentioned that this is kind of an ongoing process mm. and obviously there's there's work to be done so what for you what's what's next and and what can other people do to get involved in this or to you know improve the the, the rollout of this because it sounds you know really important work mm. well it, it has to be a collaborative exercise you know it involves building a community of practice and we're right at the beginning of that process and then, you know there's a lot there, there's a number of people involved so far the the terms and the constructs and so on have to be developed with the community to be useful to that community so it's not about you know someone like me saying you know this is how you have to think about things it's about people who are building ontologies finding out what the field wants and then helping that field to formalize those those constructs in a way that they think great i can now use this this is this is just what i need so um, Sharon Cox, Caitlin Notley, and others in the field of tobacco are developing particular parts of the ontology. And we've published a paper on an ontology of tobacco products, which helps to clarify that side of things. And there's still lots of work to do on that. There's lots of other particular areas that we're now working on in collaboration with Susan Mickey and the, the team that I'm involved in at UCL and, and elsewhere on a behavior change intervention ontology, BCIO. And Addicto and BCIO are very intimately linked with each other. They're, they're, they're being developed in parallel. They're, then, And I think really in terms of people getting involved, it's this stage of, of the process, it's really a question of just getting in touch with me <laughs> or, or Sharon or Caitlin, depending on what I was interested in. We're working with a, a brilliant computer scientist called Jana Hastings, who ha- does all the sort of heavy lifting, the, the computer science and, and software engineering side of it. And we've built a pipeline which takes you from a spreadsheet version, which you can work on, We you know, people like me can work on, and then it then has scripts that convert that into the sort of ontology language that's needed. The ontology language that most people use is called OWL. OWL, weirdly, stands for Web Ontology Language, or it should really be WOL. And it's a a computer science joke. (laughs) Computer scientists, you know, great sense of humor. Computer science joke based on um, uh, Winnie the Pooh. Where if you look it up, Wall and Owl get confused in some way. To be honest, I haven't looked it up, but this is what I'm told. Anyway, the web ontology language is called Owl. People, you know, just can Google it and see what it's like. It's pretty, pretty complex stuff. And 
But, you know, that this is why we have computer scientists to help us. We do the sort of conceptual stuff and then we work with ontologists to to implement it. But actually what, you know, what Jana's been doing and we're working on this uh, to improve it is to create this pipeline so that anyone who who wants to build an ontology can use this pipeline to do so in principle. In practice, what would be really cool, I think, would be if it's in the field of addiction, if they link up with us so that we can we can coordinate our efforts and make available the software pipeline. Brilliant. Well, that all sounds really interesting. And I have many, many more questions, but conscious of time. So um, anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Only that um, this is, as I say, this is very early days. We've we've done one on tobacco products, and that is still being developed. We've also published one in addiction on identity. You know, very very different thing. And and if people want to look at that paper, then I believe it's open access. And the idea there is again to sort of unify or provide a common framework within which people can talk about identity, because it's another one of these areas where there's lots and lots of different ways of construing it. And what we'd really like to do for people who are interested in that side of things would be to start elaborating some of these just very broad, high-level constructs into the kinds of constructs that people specifically want to use around things like self-efficacy, which is an aspect of identity, gender identity, addiction you know addict identity and so on so you know again anyone who's interested you know get in touch and the more people we have working on this you know the faster we can progress brilliant well feel free to get in touch with robert and we'll hopefully get this uh, get this moving well thank you very much for your time it's been a really interesting interview and um thanks for joining us on addiction audio my pleasure <laughs> <laughs>